53. I'm going to begin reading at the third verse. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and Jehovah hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you have noticed anything of the uh, outline that's in your bulletins for the message today, you'll see that I've entitled it Three Faces of Evil. Anytime that I try to offer a title for a sermon, you can assume that it's very loosely done and it's not binding you, nor is it binding me. But I was thinking, of course, of our last uh, messages upon three particular characters that David encountered in his flight from Jerusalem, in his flight from his son Absalom. You will remember that these three individuals were Ziba, Shimei, and Ahithophel. And the reason that I chose to reflect upon these individuals was because, as I've said more than once, David is also a type not only of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's also a type of each one of us. And we are going to encounter in our lifetime, trying to follow Christ, we are going to encounter zebras, we're going to encounter liars, and we're going to encounter those that would curse us as Shimei cursed David. We're going to encounter Ahithophels that may even seek to take our lives if they can. We are going to have contact with such in this world. Jesus Christ himself has told us that in this world you shall have tribulation. Now we know from going through 2 Samuel that these individuals were used of God himself to bring forth the chastising that he had appointed for David because of his sin. And I'm not gonna suggest that every time that we have conflict with a liar or with a cursor or with one who would seek our life, that it's the chastening hand of God. That simply isn't the case, but it may be, and it should and could give us cause for reflection. Zeba was a liar. He lied to David about Mephibosheth, seeking to gain uh, the ear of the king, seeking to uh, pad his own pillow. This is the way of the world, is it not? This is the way of virtually the entirety of the world, save for those who are seeking to walk before God and be holy. And even believers, we must confess, 
stumble and fall again, even as David himself demonstrates very clearly the possibility of those who love God falling into great and terrible sin. But this is the way of the world, that lying that is. When the Christian steps away from righteousness and lies, it's not the right way and he will be corrected as David is being corrected in this portion of God's word. There were those besides Ziba that lied to David. There were those that lied about David. You will very likely, depending on how many years God gives you in this earth, you will have people lying about you. You will perhaps stumble and find yourself guilty of a lie. You will be struggling with the world. It's called spiritual warfare. We recall how that Saul, King Saul, believed the lie that people told him that David was after his throne, that David wanted to take his throne away from him. And it was Doeg, that terrible individual that did Saul's bidding and slaying all the priests at Nob, who was a liar. These men are just examples of those that are lied about and those that have been guilty of lies. But Jesus himself was lied about, was he not? How many false stories were told, in particular by the Jews, uh, the Pharisees and so on, about our Lord Jesus Christ. We only need to glance, I'm sure that you're well aware that these things are so. We, we only need to glance at one verse in Luke 23, the first verse, where they had brought Jesus before Pilate and listen to what was said by these people, the whole company of them, rose up and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man perverting our nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, some of that, of course, is, is true, although he was very, uh, he didn't actually say that he was a king until I believe in his uh, interrogation by Pilate. And as far as giving tribute to Caesar, most of us know that account of how he said, give that which is, uh, belongs to Caesar unto Caesar and that which belongs unto God unto God. So these were falsehoods, they were out and out lies. But again, we're gonna be accused of things that we haven't done and we need to be prepared for it. We need to be able to have the hide of a rhinoceros, as many have said. We need to let things roll off our back. And in occasions when God would have us to defend the truth, even if it means having to defend ourselves, then we must continue praying always that we would be ready to give an answer to those who might do so. We will be reviled for our faith. We, Christ was reviled. One of the terrible lies that came to my mind when I was preparing was a lie that we could say is about Christ, and yet what I refer to is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
another gospel. The liars that Paul speaks of in the Galatian epistle, claiming the necessity of circumcision, are examples of this kind of lying. But there's a perverted gospel today, is there not? Is there not a perverted gospel if you have enough time to waste watching and surfing on the TV to see some of these quote-unquote religious um, programs, you will hear many lies about the gospel. And you need to be well-based in the scriptures. You need to search the scriptures, even as when Paul preached, those of, of Berea searched the scriptures to see if those things were true. And so we need to pray that God would give us continually a Berean spirit. Of course, Paul spoke of those that he was referring to that required circumcision. He said that they should let them be anathema. They brought another gospel. And we can stumble and fall about what it requires for some presentation to be considered another gospel. And we need to be careful and I'm not calling anyone a heretic simply because they're preaching an incorrect gospel. They themselves may be deceived, but sadly, whether that is the case or not, they are deceiving others. And that is one of my concerns this morning. Let them be anathema, Paul said. Adding to the scriptures, adding to the gospel, this is done time and again. Well, yes, you must believe that. The, the scriptures say that, but then you also have to understand this, and you have to practice that. And they've added something to the gospel in order to be truly saved. We know of, uh, of those in the charismatic camp that whether they intend to do so or not, they will question somebody's salvation if they haven't received that second blessing of being able to speak in tongues. And there are many instances and examples along those lines. How did Christ deal with liars? I would recommend that you consider how he dealt with Satan in the wilderness and that temptation when Satan brought forth all these lies the biggest lie of which was by implication when he said, if, if thou art the son of God, do this and do that. And how did Christ respond with the word of God, did he not? We need to be ready to do the same thing. But there are gospels in our day and that have been around for a number of days that are really only half truths. And I don't know if everyone in this room will agree with me about all of these things, but it's been said over and again that a half a truth, when it's pronounced to be the whole truth, is in fact a lie. If you utter a half of the truth and you say that's the whole truth, that is a lie. I frankly believe that the Arminian gospel is a lie is a half a truth or a part of a truth. The Arminian gospel, and basically, while they're not insisting on circumcision, they are insisting on adding something to what Christ has done. 
God has done all that he can. Now it's up to you. Christ has died for you. Now it's up to you. And the individual is called upon to do something himself, to add to the work of God, to add to the work of Jesus Christ. Is that not a truncated gospel? And is a truncated gospel the entire gospel? I'm not talking about all the systematic theology or soteriology about dotting all your I's and crossing your T's. I'm talking about adding something to the gospel or perhaps even leaving something off. Truncated means, at least in many instances, it just simply means that there's the, there's the trunk of the tree, but there are no branches. And that's what, and we have heard that in this building a number of times, that this Arminian gospel, this Arminian teaching actually logically allows that there won't be any branches because it's up to man. Whereas the teaching that we hold by conviction teaches that God has a people and Christ has died for them and they will come to him. It is possible, according to Arminian teaching, that no one will ever come to God through Jesus Christ. It's a truncated gospel. It's a tree without branches. And there are those many, sadly, that cry, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah spoke about those false prophets. They cry, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Many are ready to give peace, to speak peace to individuals when they have walked down an aisle, when they have raised their hand, when they have said this prayer after someone, and so on. And please hear me out. I'm not suggesting that none of those people are, are truly saved. I don't know who was who saved and who are not. But you can look easily, and others have done studies. I'm not much into that, but many, many that have walked down the aisles, the bulk of them have gone right back out into the world and given no testimony that anything was changed. And I think it's a very perilous, perilous practice to tell them, give them assurance because of something that they have done. It's a lie. And these people that know that they're lying are zebras. Then, of course, there are those that curse David, like Shimei, throwing stones at him, kicking dust in his face, and so on, berating him. He was cursing God's own anointed king, David. And there are those that curse God's own anointed king, our Lord Jesus Christ in different ways. They curse him, take his name in vain, speak untruths about him, and so on. I've never been able to forget a high school friend. I would point out that I wasn't a Christian until I was 35 years old, so I wasn't walking, obviously, as a Christian before this high school friend 
but I've never been able to forget in a conversation about with him about the fact that God gives faith. I mean, I seem to have some, some knowledge of something anyway. I was raised for several years in my youth in a church, but at any rate, he was defending his unbelief and said that if God didn't give him that, well, damn him. Can you imagine that? And I'm sure that there are a lot of other people that have done that same thing, and maybe not vocally in the hearing of others, but they've at least done that in their thinking. There are those that are cursing our Lord Jesus Christ, and they are shimmyites. There are those that are pronouncing even today God manifested in the, le- in the flesh that, that Christ himself is, is something less than God manifested in the flesh. He, again, Christ reviled not again with these. But they're diminishing his lordship, are they not? They're diminishing who he is and who he says he is. And there's a sense in which he's being cursed. He reviled not again. Toward the end of his course, we read in that 53rd chapter of Isaiah, that as a sheep before it shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He held his peace. Jesus opened not his mouth. According to Isaiah's gospel, when they were reviling him, and all these things, and of course we see him in the New Testament actually doing this before Pilate and others. He held his peace. And there are many times when it would be good for us if we held our peace. Not perhaps when some are cursing Christ or are lying about Christ, but when we're the ones that are being cursed, when we're the ones that are being lied about. As I've already said, there are many times when it might be good for us to hold our peace and listen to those words of Jesus' example that he held his peace. I read where one pastor said a number of years ago that the best thing he could do with regard to some Christians would be to take a piece of duct tape and tape their mouth shut. I'm not suggesting that, of course, but I'm just saying that it would be good that if we were led by God the Holy Spirit to hold our peace and not feel like that we have to always be proving that we're in the right, always be proving that what we have said is true and always be arguing. There are times that call for us holding our peace. And then even as there were those seeking to destroy David, those that were seeking to destroy Christ, so there will be those that would try to destroy us Maybe just to the point of destroying our reputation and and thus destroying our testimony for Christ. But Christ told us clearly in, in the scriptures that they hated me before they hated you. They will hate you. The world will hate you. And we can only praise God for his mercy that is not acted out upon us all the time and especially in this land, but it is being acted out this day, today, somewhere in the world against the people of God. Those Jews crying out, his blood be upon us. How terrible, how terrible a pronouncement to make. And our children, they said. 
and those that were waving palm branches and so on at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem shortly thereafter were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Ahithophel plotted to see David killed by his very own son, Absalom. He desired, his design was David's death. The chief priests and the scribes were plotting the death of Christ, convincing the people to cry unto Pilate, crucify him. Wouldn't you rather have Barabbas, Pilate said? I'll give you, no. Crucify Christ. Ahithophel, the would-be murderer, crucifying God's anointed king. We read God's response to that in the second psalm when he said, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And he will mock all these, but how do we deal with it in the meantime here on earth? We must deal, we must have a response if possible. We must live before such people that will lie about us and to us, that will curse us and demean us, mocking us, and that might even seek to destroy us in some way or another. We know how they treated our Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels. We read about how they struck him. You ever thought about those individuals, those soldiers or whoever they were, servants of the priests that actually slapped God in the face with their hand? What a horrible thing to imagine. They smote him. They spit upon him. Is that not a form of cursing or perhaps even worse? Spitting on the creator of the world. Spitting upon his only son, only begotten son. Spitting upon him. How terrible. And how should we react to that sort of thing? I would think that we need to remember that when people would, in effect, strike us. When people would, in effect, spit on us. When they would mock us. We need to curb our reactions and remember, again, Christ's words, they hated, they hate you because they hated me before. And be reminded of why these people are doing this. Consider what Paul said in, in Romans in the third chapter. What did he have to say about the wicked, about the world, about how we can expect to be treated? He said, of the wicked, he said, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 3, their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. This is how the wicked are. They will use deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. That suggests that they're going to say anything that they can to discredit the followers of Jesus Christ, to demean them whose mouth, in 14, is full of cursing and bitterness. We will be cursed. As David was cursed, as, as Christ Jesus himself was cursed. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And so if they could, if they were in a land where it would be permissible or even encouraged, they would be swift to shed blood our blood. 
and they will be swift to shed, if I can put it this way, the blood of our reputation if they have any op opportunity to do so. The way of peace have they not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's how people will behave, and we need to be ready for it. We need to pray every morning to, for God to be with us and uphold us and be ready to defend his honor and not so quick to defend our own. This is what we are up against in the world. And sadly, not only from the world, but from within our own hearts, fighting that spiritual warfare in our own hearts, having wicked thoughts and so on, and within the churches as well. The church is not a monastery. We're gonna experience such things even in the church. If the world hateth you, you know that it had hated me before it hated you. And it called to mind an example of McCall, David's wife, when he came dancing before the ark, bringing the ark back into the city and joyous and dancing before God, before the ark of God. And it says simply that McCall looked out her window and saw David dancing and she despised him in her heart. There are people that are going to despise us in their hearts because we love God and because we are followers of the Lamb. But our champion has won the victory. I was very pleased, of course, with Josh picking out that in Christ alone to sing today. It goes along with my thoughts. Christ won the victory at Golgotha. He is our champion. He was lied about and plotted against. He was cursed by the people and made a curse for his own. Paul has told us that in Galatians, in the third chapter. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. In order to remove the curse from us, Christ became a curse for us. Can we get our hands around that? It's difficult. How can God become a curse for us? It's a mystery. Christ redeemed us from the curse, having become a curse for us. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, Paul says. And he's quoting in that cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21, if you want to follow along with me, I'm going to read a few verses there. And I freely confess that what I found in my studies astounded me. When I turned back to Deuteronomy 21, And we find these words beginning at verse 18 of Deuteronomy 21. If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son that will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they chasten him, will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him 
and bring him out unto the elders of his city and unto the gate of his place. And they shall say unto the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. Listen. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Do those terms ring a bell? He is a glutton and a drunkard, and all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So shalt thou put away the evil from the midst of thee, and all Israel shall hear and fear. And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt surely bury him the same day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God. Paul, citing this, saying, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. But do you recognize some of these other features in this example that Paul has derived this from? He that is hanged is accursed. In the margin it says, The curse of God. He becomes the curse of God for his people. And what is the crime that Moses is speaking of here, or that God through Moses is speaking of here? It's incredible that the particular crime is that of a stubborn and rebellious son. This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. I simply have never noticed that connection before. The cursed one is the stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey a drunkard and a glutton. The Pharisees called Jesus Christ a wine-bibber and a gluttonous man. One of the lies that they told about him. One of the charges. Christ wasn't a disobedient son. He was the most obedient son possible, perfect in all his ways. And he always did the will of his father. And that they were accusing him in these terms. He was never stubborn, yet he was cursed. He had no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth, Isaiah said in 53. Him who knew no sin, Paul says in Corinthians, he made to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in this stubborn and rebellious son. No, in a son that always did the will of his father. A son that was perfect, holy and righteous in all his ways. God made Christ sin for us. It pleased Jehovah to bruise him. He made him sin for us. Now be clear. He did not make him a sinner for us. He made him sin for us. He did not make him a sinner. Christ is ever and always without sin, holy, harmless, and undefiled. And God made him sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ, in him. This is the radical change, is it not? He's talking about the radical change that the curse is removed from the people that God has given his son and his righteousness is imputed to them. 
that radical exchange. And it is only through the radical exchange that any member of mankind will ever experience the radical change. In other words, regeneration, the new birth, being born again. And it is only in consequence of the radical change that any will ever know the radical exchange, that any will ever understand. How did I become like this? How did I start loving the things that I once hated and hating the things that I once loved? Where did this change come from? And you begin in your walk to be given something of a description of this radical exchange that brought about the radical change. We have a beautiful picture in Zechariah. In Zechariah, in the third chapter, <coughs> Joshua the priest. We read, and he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Jehovah and Satan standing at his right hand to be his adversary. Satan, the liar, remember. The one who was a liar from the beginning, his adversary, and Jehovah said unto Satan, Jehovah rebuke thee, O Satan. Yea, Jehovah that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Are not each one of us who name the name of Jesus Christ who have experienced regeneration and conversion, are we not each one of us brands plucked out of the burning? Certainly so. Certainly so. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. He was clothed with filthy garments. We think of Isaiah, all our fil uh, righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Here is Joshua the high priest standing in these filthy garments before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, that is this angel, take the filthy garments from off him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with rich apparel. And I said, Let them set a clean mitre or turban upon his head. So they set a clean mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of Jehovah, could that possibly be the Lord Jesus Christ, was standing by. It's his work upon the cross that brought all this about. But the filthy garments, the curse, or, or we should say the sin, is taken off and clean garments placed upon us. The righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yea, the radical exchange of garments. Those filthy garments of our own righteousness, our own supposed righteousness, exchanged for the robe of Christ Jesus' righteousness, not our own. This is that radical change that comes about because of the radical exchange. It is only by that consequence that any, that any become righteousness in their position and through sanctification gradually, day by day, in their experience. That beautiful picture of Joshua the high priest. The change of covering. 
once covered by filthy rags, now covered by the blood of the Lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ. Horatio Bonar in one of the hymns in our hymnal wrote, begins a, a hymn, Not What My Hands Have Done. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Nothing that I have done can save my guilty soul. It's only God through Jesus Christ, through his blood. Through the regenerating power of God, the Holy Spirit, bringing about the new birth that can save any. Not what my hands, not, what my, not raising my hand, not what my feet have done, not what my eyes have done, not what my tongue has done but only what God has done can save a wretched sinner. James Denny, a preacher in the 19th century Scotland, said with regard to that text from 2 Corinthians, that text from 2 Corinthians, him who knew no sin he made to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's a mystery to us, isn't it? How can these things be? We're reminded of the words of Nicodemus. How can these things be? And really, they're both speaking of the new birth, are they not? But James Denny said about this mystery, he said, quote, It is not the puzzle, or the mystery, it is not the puzzle of the New Testament, this passage, but the ultimate solution of all puzzles. It is not an irrational quantity that has to be eliminated or explained away. But the keystone of the whole system of apostolic thought, it is not a blank obscurity in Revelation, a spot of impenetrable blackness. It is the focus in which the reconciling love of God burns with the purest and intensest flame. It is the fountain, of, the fountain light of all day, the master light of all seeing in the Christian revelation. That's what, that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. That is what the reconciling love of God does. You'd stand uh, for the benediction. Psalm 32. The first couple of verses. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom Jehovah imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Amen.